Hello, everybody. I am Rena Lewis, Professor of Cultural Studies here at London College of Fashion, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you here this evening. Tonight's topic of LGBTQ plus sexualities and religious cultures comes as part of LCF's Faith and Fashion series and as part of the university's program to mark 50 years since the Sexual Offences Act partially decriminalised male homosexuality in England and Wales. And it's really thrilling to have the opportunity to bring these two topics together. And I'm honoured and delighted to be welcoming our speakers, Asad Duna, Dr. Sarah Jane Page, and the Reverend Sally Hitchner. We will be delighted if you want to tweet and post during tonight's conversation, and I'm told that we request you use hashtag faith and fashion. I'm going to start off shortly with a bit of a scene-setting introduction and into introduce our speakers properly, but first I have to do the usual housekeeping. If the fire alarm goes off, it is not a drill. Exit swiftly through the door to your right. Go down the stairs to the street. When you get onto the street, walk away from the burning building. <laughs> Less urgently, but perhaps also importantly, the toilets are also through the door to your right. And my final announcement, if you could put your phones to silent, please, we'd appreciate that. So 2017 has been an extraordinary year for forms of lesbian and gay and bisexual and trans and queer visibility. The commemoration of the partial decriminalization of male homosexuality in 1967 has seen radio and TV commissions, grant-funded research projects, heritage culture displays, and large gallery exhibitions. Many of you will have seen already the sellout exhibition Queer British Art at Tate Britain. And then tomorrow night, we have the exhibition on the artist Gluck opening in Brighton, supported by our own UAL Research Centre for Fashion Curation. I've been impressed that programmes making this landmark legislation have been clear that this was a partial decriminalisation, concerned only with sexual acts between men over the age of 21 in private, and only in England and Wales. Scotland didn't decriminalise male homosexuality until 1981, Northern Ireland, 1982. Lesbians and bisexual women were not included in the act because sex between women was not actually illegal. Instead, women faced punishment for transgressing heteronormative gender roles, routinely losing children in custody battles, facing, quote, corrective rape and sexual violence, and dealing with reduced employment options if their dress and demeanor were not appropriately feminine. Queer and trans men and women will have similar stories of injustice as also of resistance. The celebratory mood in the anniversary year of 2017 has also been tempered by a widespread acknowledgement that still today in the UK, LGBTQ people experience prejudice, violence and crime because of who they are or who they are perceived to be. And this is often triggered by how they look. Coverage has also acknowledged that homosexuality, lesbianism, being queer, being bisexual or trans, continues to be legislated against in parts of the world, with people facing prejudice, assault and death. The ability of the British state to recognise this as a legitimate claim for asylum remains uneven. And we may think later about how in the immigration system, the need to look convincingly like what you claim to be becomes a factor in the courts. For Faith and Fashion tonight, I wanted to focus on the body, its clothing, its adornment and its comportment in the relationships between LGBTQ sexualities and religious cultures. And when I was thinking about it, I deliberately chose the term religious cultures rather than simply religion because I wanted to signal that religions and their practices are themselves historically specific and variable and changeable. Religious forms of inclusion and exclusion, patterns of prayer and piety, modes of celebration and of mourning are multiple rather than monolithic. Putting LGBTQ sexualities and religious cultures together, our frame can include thinking about how, when and where certain styles of dress and behavior might make one visible as LGBTQ inside and outside religious communities. 
Our frame also includes how religious and religio-ethnic identities become visible or invisible inside and outside the cultures and politics of sexuality and gender. And our view here includes religious functionaries, ordained and not ordained, just as much as their congregations. For faith and fashion, we think about the role of the body in the cultivation of religious and spiritual dispositions and identities, as also in the development and performance of queer subjectivities. So I want to start with a little bit of intellectual housekeeping, having done the fire drill. In using LGBTQ or LGBTQ plus as a group classification, I'm taking a shortcut. The ways that sexual orientations and gender identities are named change constantly. Here, as with the naming of racial and ethnic categories, language is deeply politicized and context specific. Preferred terms come in and out of fashion. Terms of stigma are reclaimed by some, regarded as unusable by others. I propose that we agree for today's discussion that everyone is welcome to select their own forms of classification without one invalidating or replacing the other, and where necessary, we'll seek clarification. The same thing applies to language that identifies people and practices in relation to religion and spirituality. Our opportunity today is to explore and discuss, and for this I'm taking all forms of identification and classification as changeable and contingent. I've always loved how Lisa Walker writes about lesbian style. She talks about looking like what you are and when and where it's safe to do this and to whom you wish to be recognizable and to whom you wish to be less recognizable. And she gives the example of the lesbian femme, the femininely presented, presenting lesbian woman, who may face less risk on the streets for being able to pass as heterosexual, but who may in other spaces most definitely want to be identifiable, perhaps to be recognized as lesbian by other lesbians. In contrast, the masculine woman, the masculine lesbian, sometimes the butch, is always at risk for being too recognizable externally. And of course, today, there are plenty of people who did at some point in their life present as butch lesbians who now consider themselves as trans, a clear indication of how the forms of identification and the names we use can change across a single lifetime. And let's not even start on the challenges for bisexual women or men in rendering themselves visible in queer and in heteronormative contexts. How one is recognizable is rarely inside one's control. The context in which our dress bodies are viewed have a massive impact on how others see us and how we experience ourselves. My typical example for this is when Muslim women in the UK wear a headscarf or a hijab, their clothing renders their religious identity hyper-visible, especially in a post-9-11 securitizing context. In the domain of sexuality, hyper-visibility might be seen to apply to the camp drag queen or the butch dyke. Those would be typical examples. But in each sector, the hyper-visibility of some forms of embodiment is matched by the invisibility of others. In contrast to the hyper-visible Muslim woman in a hijab, we might think of the Muslim woman who does dress with modesty in mind, but doesn't cover her hair. She is as likely to be invisible to other Muslims as also to non-Muslims. Hypervisibility might also apply to the pioneering generation of women ordained within the church, as we've seen in Sarah's brilliant research. Bodies marked by age will be read differently, as also bodies marked by visible ethnicity. How ethnicity and religion are read off the dress body is dynamic and changeable. White women who convert to Islam may find themselves racialized, especially if they wear hijab. Minority ethnic women who did wear the hijab and who take it off find that their ethnicity becomes differently legible. The role of the body is about more than simply communicating externally who one already is on the inside. How we dress, move, and adorn our bodies builds our sense of ourselves and our place in the world. Religions may have protocols for food and for fasting, for washing and for not washing, for the growing and cutting of hair, for managing blood and breath, and for learning embodied modes of prayerfulness. When it comes to clothes, religiously related garments don't always simply adorn an already religious self. 
they also help form it. In the UK, LGBTQ movements have historically been largely secular in their presumptions, as for many years was British multiculturalism. Many LGBTQ activists and organizations did and do presume that religion is oppositional to their agenda. Despite the personal faith and participation of many LGBTQ individuals, most religious cultures and institutions have long suppressed or rejected overtly queer behaviors and individuals. For people committed to religious or religio-ethnic communities, it can be hard to find a home within institutional religions, as also for feminists challenging gender roles. LGBTQ activism within religious cultures may be invisible to external observers. Sometimes change requires decades of quiet behind the scenes lobbying and building private consensus. Sometimes LGBTQ activism is about making a claim in public to religious identifications. We see this perhaps in the increasing numbers of religious groups visible at pride parades around the world. But there again, we have to be mindful that those who march may stand in for the many co-religionists who find it unsafe to attend. And we have to be aware that how individuals and groups claim religious expression at Pride may be contested by other LGBTQ members of the same faith. It's never a one-size-fits-all. Thinking about sexuality and gender and religion in relation to fashion highlights the diversity of forms of religious and of LGBTQ expression and the many ways that we navigate the material and immaterial world. Who better to help us contemplate this than our speakers tonight? Asaduna, seated in the middle, is a speaker, writer, and communications director. Asad's work focuses on identity and sexuality. He's been published in Vice, The Huff Post, Newsweek, and The Guardian, amongst others, and is a regular on BBC Radio and has appeared on Sky News. In 2016, Asad founded the Big Gay Iftar in response to the shootings in Orlando, Florida, where 49 people were killed in a gay club. The Big Gay Iftar brings together members of the LGBTQ and Muslim community to open fast together, to have the meal at the end of the day during Ramadan. During Ramadan. And it received widespread media attention when it was launched here and abroad. And last year, the event featured prominently in the schedule for London Pride, and it was held at St Andrew's Church in Southwark in South London and I believe the plans for this summer are looking even more impressive, so we'll be hearing more shortly. I'm delighted to welcome back, seated at the end there, the Reverend Sally Hitchner. Some of you may recall that Sally joined us previously to discuss what to wear when you work for God. <laughs> I thought working at LCF was a tough challenge, but <laughs> Sally has it harder. Sally was reflecting on her day job as coordinating chaplain of the Multi-Faith Chaplaincy Centre at Brunel University. As well as that work, Sally is founder and director of Diverse Church, a large movement of online communities of LGBT Christians in the UK and Ireland. Sally represents the Diocese of London on the Church of England's Governing Council, the General Synod, and is a regular news reviewer on BBC Breakfast, as well as speaking regularly across the national media on inclusion and faith. And next to me here, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Sarah Jane Page, who is Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Aston University, Birmingham. Sarah has written widely on the sociology of religion, focusing on gender and sexualities. She was part of a huge project on the religious and sexual identities of young people in the UK from a range of religious traditions. And this resulted in a 2013 book called Religious and Sexual Identities, a multi-faith exploration of young adults that was co-authored with Andrew K. Tuck Yip. For fashion, I highly recommend Sarah's essay on power dynamics in dress and religion, in which she focused on women, in, women priests in the Church of England, and that's in Gender Work and Organization from 2014. As you all know, if you're a regular, our speakers are all kindly going to give a short presentation before we have a little discussion, and then we'll be opening for contributions from the audience. And before I hand over to Sarah Jane, who's been volunteered to start us off, join me, please, in welcoming our speakers.
Sarah, we are all yours. Thank you so much for a lovely introduction. Embodiment is key to belonging in any social setting. Nirmal Poa, who has considered the extent to which the bodies of marginalised groups are allowed to belong in particular social space, has this to say, and I quote, Some bodies are deemed as having the right to belong, while others are marked out as trespassers, who are, in accordance with how both spaces and bodies are imagined, circumscribed as being out of place. Not being the somatic norm, they are space invaders. Throughout the course of my research, whether examining women priests who have experienced all manner of exclusions within the Church of England, or whether considering how young LGBTQI religious people managed their religious and sexual identities, it was apparent that embodiment mattered. Clothing had a key part to play in the way individuals managed their identities in spaces which could often be hostile to them. It was generally the case that those marginalised individuals in settings that were least accommodating to their identities would use traditional invocations of dress in order to fit in. The women priests I interviewed, for example, talked about dressing for worship as would be expected by their parishioners. One talked about the expectation at the Christmas service for her to wear elaborate and colourful robes, and she did not contest or resist this, but instead obliged. Overwhelmingly, my interviewees wanted to fit in and be seen as in place and not a space invader. Though the size of their robes made this challenging, women revealed that most robes were too big for them, making them look childlike and symbolically suggesting that they were not serious contenders as sacred bodies, but merely dressing up. Oversized robes signaled that as women, they did not fully fit into the organisation and dress operated as an exclusionary mechanism. Few priests overtly challenge the clothing norms or use their clothes as a, as a form of protest, though a minority did do this. Indeed, a recent MA at Durham, written by the priest Ruth Wells, outlines her attempts to disrupt patriarchal assumptions by retailing a man's cassock from Savile Row and instead embroidering a vagina on it, and in one fell swoop, challenging traditional church authority. Clerical wear conveys a certain symbolism, and it is a powerful statement when priests use their dress as a means of resistance and even protest. Thinking about the recent events in Zimbabwe that yesterday culminated in the house arrest of President Mugabe. Some years ago, Archbishop John Sentamu publicly cut up his clerical collar on national TV. So the clerical collar is the commonly known as the dog collar, Here's as fashioned um, here uh, by, by Sally. Um, and uh, the, the, so he, he, he cut up that clerical collar um, basically to protest um, at the, the, um, the regime in Zimbabwe and the diminishment of identity under President Mugabe's rule. The fact that the object utilised was a clerical collar made it more poignant, a symbol of religious authority and sacrality. Yet the garments cultivating a pious body can also be treated as a space invader in places of worship where religion has been eschewed. For example, a young gay Christian I interviewed wore a clerical collar in an LGBTQI space and received a negative and adverse reaction. When individuals bring seemingly incongruous identities together, whether that be gender and religious authority or religious and LGBTQI identities, Confusion abounds and the body becomes the object of scrutiny, critique and debate. Now women can become bishops, this brings about new challenges and negotiations. The bishop's mitre, for example, so this is the, uh, the, the headwear typically worn by a bishop, the, the conical headwear, and that's exclusively for the use of the bishop. And that has been solely worn by men for centuries and it's defined through male embodied norms. So what happens when women uh, wear the mitre and take up that, um, that, that, that uh, piece of clothing? Um, are they the correct fit or not? How is that experienced? That research is yet to be undertaken. For the young LGBTQI individuals I interviewed, the context of inclusion and exclusion made all the difference in their clothing choices. For those for whom it was too risky to reveal one's sexual identity or current relationship status, it was the case that piety could be cultivated and achieved through the clothing practices one adopted. And this could be used as a form of protection. 
In this case, fitting in with pious clothing regimes could actually minimise gender and, and, and sexual scrutiny from others. And this is underpinned by certain erroneous assertions that one cannot be religious and LGBTQI. So by cultivating embodied piety, those around you are less likely to ask questions about sexuality or gender difference. Take the case of Jamil. Jamil was an 18-year-old bisexual Muslim, and at the time of interview, he had a boyfriend living in a city some distance away. His boyfriend was also Muslim, but was estranged from his family and had been asked to leave the family home at 16 because of his sexuality. This was a secret relationship. Jamil's family and friends were not aware of it, and Jamil was concerned about the consequences were his family to find out. He came from a very religious family, and his faith identity was absolutely central to who he was. His identity was strongly conveyed through the clothes that he wore, and he regularly wore the thobe, which is an ankle-length robe, typically um, of Middle um, Eastern origin, and also the kufi, which is the rounded cap, um, to, to signify his identity as a Muslim. This signalling was important, especially as he attended a college in an area with few other Muslims. He was very derisive towards the clothing practices of non-Muslim gay men at college, and he described their attire as immodest, just noting some of the, the, the contradictions and conflicts apparent here. Jamil was mediating many dimensions to his life. His family were not aware of his sexuality, though suspicions were being raised. His boyfriend was not as devout as him, and this created tensions in their relationship. His boyfriend questioned his choice of clothing, saying, you're bisexual, isn't it haram to wear these clothes, forbidden if you're like homosexual? This once again signals the assumed tensions between one's personal faith identity and sexuality. And although Jamil himself saw no tension between the two, those around him found it to be incongruous and unsettling. Jamil's close reading of the Quran had given him the theological resources to challenge the idea that being bisexual and Muslim was problematic saying that the Quran did not define LGBTQ sexualities as haram. Indeed, Jamil used clothing to signify his Muslimness, saying, and I quote him here, I can't be gay without being a Muslim. It has to be the whole issue. It makes me what I am. Clothing is hugely important in signaling to others one's identity. Clothing raises particular questions regarding inclusion, belonging, and acceptance. Certain spaces are crafted to exclude certain bodies. Particular antagonisms are apparent in my data between so-called religious and LGBTQI spaces. Participants donning religious clothing felt they were judged and scrutinized as a result of their clothing. But utilizing traditional religious attire could also enable them to blend in, offering protection against being outed. But this is dependent on a construction where religion and LGBTQI are seen antagonistically and oppositional. Thank you. And now, Asad, and I think Got some slides. we're going to have some lights down and some slides, yes. Uh, just point generally. <laughs> Wait, it'll come. Hang on. Have we got it? That's oh, your yeah, first slide. Go back, yeah, there go we back go. one. That's the first one. Um, so... This is a picture of um, the big gay iftar um, that, that Raina mentioned before. So I'm just going to tell you the story of how That's this came to be. Pardon? Sorry, I thought that was your second one. Oh. Uh, no? That's, that's the second one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah we're good. Um, so of how, how that came to be. So um, so the iftar, as you mentioned, is the um, fast opening meal that happens during Ramadan, so the 30 days of fast. And last year... Um, I was due to have about eight people around to my house um, just to open fast together, and I thought it'd be quite nice. I'd just moved in and have a couple people around. Um, and then I went to, um, I went, did some volunteering, and the um, 49 people were killed in a, in a club in Orlando, which was an LGBT club, and they were killed by a purported Muslim um, who may or may not have been struggling with his sexuality, but the media said what it said. And... Um, I think I, I went into a state of shock for about half a day um, of really wondering, is that going to be the media narrative of what happens when you put LGBT and Muslim in the same space as you talked about? Um, and that's what happens, a gruesome, deadly killing. Um, I, I, and then that was when all the media kind of took off of people asking for opinions and, and why that might have happened. 
And so I thought, well, I'm going to have eight people round on the weekend. What if I get a couple more? Um, and so I got, got thinking, and I came back from this volunteering. And volunteering is a great thing because it just gives you space away from every, the everyday. And I was in Calais in, in the jungle um, and working with refugees there. And when I, when I came back, I remember so clearly being on the overground from like Clapham Junction to Peckham um, and, and thinking, well, where am I going to find a space to put people in and create a safe space? Um, and a friend of mine uh, just so happens to have a church. Um, so <laughs> he said, well, why don't you have the hall? And we, we can't give you a consecrated space because um, it's an iftar, but we can give you a space. So um, what, what if we do that? And I said, okay, well, I've got, <laughs> I've got the church. Here's the steeple. I've got to get the people. Um, and so put it on Eventbrite and thought, well, I'll just put it up. And, and then I work in comms, so I thought, if I'm going to change the narrative, I've got to call it something. So a big gay iftar naturally makes people go, sorry, what? First it's a big iftar, then it's a big gay iftar. Um, and I had a lot of flack, actually, for that name of people saying, well, can, you, can an iftar really be gay? And I was like, well, can a Muslim really be gay? If the Muslim can be gay, then an iftar can be gay. And actually, what is an iftar about? It's about bringing people together and opening fast. And traditionally, it is you bring everyone in, you open your home, and you let, you let them in, and you create that space. So why can't that space be an LGBT space? Because that's what LGBT clubs are for, those kind of spaces. And I think there's at least I've experienced a bit of a tension in LGBT spaces, especially for, for men that can be predominantly clubs or drinking environments, which then clashes with um, being Muslim. So had the, had the space, had the people, um, needed some food, um, so reached out to someone who was running supper clubs and has now set up a restaurant, and she kindly offered to, to cater for it and cater for free. Not free. We then needed some money, uh, and then Pride in London kindly supported um, this financially, and, and then it became an entity in and of itself. And so, um, that this wasn't actually a picture from last year. This is a picture from this year because then what happened was as as people got to to know about it last year, there were these putrid yellow sheets on the floor because I went down to uh, Whitechapel and just went into all the shops and I was like, I'm organising an iftar. Can I have some? sheets to sit on thinking that it would be like a really generous time apparently not you have to buy the sheets and the <laughs> ones i could afford were putrid yellow um but this year um mass who, who's there who's also a trustee with me uh, in iman and i'll talk about iman in a second he said well why don't we put a rainbow out on the floor and, and use sheets like that which was then a beautiful um symbol and i think this stands for a lot because he came in and he wore a, a long gown and you've got someone in a headscarf there there's there's a lot of symbolism here i think about creating a safe space a in a um in a religious context but also in lgbt context and i thought well why don't we create this space so we had this space and we had we had the food um and then this is what it looked like once you put everyone down and i think there's a couple of things in here that I think are quite interesting. You asked about, well, what does someone wear to an iftar to sit down? Now, um, this is stereotyping, but I will do it anyway. I think a certain um, cohort of the gay male community will wear quite tight trousers. You can't sit down on the floor in tight trousers. So already people were thinking, well, what do I, what do I wear? And it's a Saturday night, so it's a Saturday night in July, and people, I think, were thinking about, well, you're going out, but you're not really going out, and you're stepping into a different environment. And you can see someone in shorts, for example. There's, apparently, there's a laser on here. So there's, there's there. someone, there we go. There's someone in shorts there. So again, the Muslim part of me starts to think, well, you're really meant to be covered, but then should I be telling people they're meant to be covered because then I'm taking away from what an LGBT space should be, which is, um, which is expressing yourself. Um, and then you know that you've got various people, various colors, various backgrounds. You've got people in headscarves, um, all kind of coming together. And I think for me, this is a lovely symbol. And I think what you can't, oh, I don't know if you can see it in this picture. Oh, wait, yes, you can. Um, you can see a police officer just there um, because there were um, a couple of death threats for, for this of people saying, um, we're going to, especially after London Bridge, that this is a target. So the police come down. And I think that, again, for me, shows. Um, almost the beauty of it, of, of bringing that all together and, and, and them in, in that space. So, yeah, I think, you know, I don't have the academic background of, of how, how it all works, but I think for me this kind of bringing together and, and just putting people in one place um, and, and closing the doors and saying, look, just open fast together and taking a religious construct and overlaying it with lots of different identities can form amazing nights. And a lot of people say to me, like, this is a highlight for them. 
Um, and we've actually got a problem in that the church won't hold more people. So what do we do? Um, do we take it out of a church and put it somewhere else, or do we keep it there because that's so much part of it? And so if anyone has an opinion or a big religious space that they can give me, or a mosque, um, let me know. But again, like a mosque wouldn't host this. We just There's no way that I could even engage that conversation or start it. So, uh, yeah, that, that for me is kind of where you bring the two worlds together. And I was going to round out with this last picture, which is um, of Iman at Pride in London. So uh, for me, this is just beautiful because... Pride provides still a platform for people to go out and be who they want to be um, and be quite, um, quite aggressive, not aggressive, but just be quite true and in your face. And, you know, some of the, the placards do it. Um, mass, who you see here, that's mass, um, is also who you see here. Um, and I think that's, that's beautiful because he, he, he uses it as a political statement. He uses, um, you know, the, the full... Um, the full burqa to, to make a point that you don't know who's behind there and you know why shouldn't they be out there and um, when I march with Iman what I find amazing is um, kind of to the point of, of Jamil is people can't believe it exists and that I think is what happens you have the LGBT space which people believe exists because it's out there and people dress in a certain way and have that and you have to a faith space or a Muslim space because people see it but when you put it together and people see it they start to it starts to blow their mind and I think especially in the UK when you see people if if you saw him out on the tube you would have a certain thought in your head there'd be a certain stereotype and seeing that at pride I think completely jars that and so for me doing things like this are really important because through how people dress um, and then where people are, whether it's at the iftar in a closed space or out at Pride in a broader space, allows them to express that and allows them to feel really comfortable in satiating the two parts of their identity. Um, yes, yeah, so that's, that's me. Brilliant. Thank you. And then Sally's going to round us off. Um, so I'm going to run through a very quick but focused aspect of one aspect of Christianity or the church in particular. So I run a national support network for LGBT Christians. We've got about 700 um, across the UK and Ireland who are part of a confidential space through Facebook where um, people can be part of se uh, several different communities in order to get some support. But I'm going to talk today um, more about the church in general and how um, LGBT and the church have actually had a quite a complex history uh, in the last um, 50 years in particular. And uh, you may notice that there's a heavy focus on gay men, um, and that's basically because there hasn't been much development uh, in terms of trans um, engagement with the church up until very, very recently, and trans visibility within the church, sadly. But we are working on it. We will get there eventually. Um, and even um, lesbian understanding and lesbian visibility within the church has been very narrow, and, and I won't even start about bisexuality. Um, so I apologize for how my examples are mostly about gay men, but that's because that has been the forerunner that hopefully will be the start of the following on of other sections. Uh, so uh, camp clergy uh, could be one way to look at it. And now that's maybe um, partly this idea of a, a camp as in a space for, uh, like, like a holiday camp where you go away and you have some space away. In fact, uh, one uh, gay priest I know in London said that when I was young, Section 28 meant that uh, church was the only space that I could talk about my emerging sexuality. And there is indeed part of the church where it's long been understood that you can have more conversations around um, uh, being gay, in particular if you're a man, um, than in general in society in the 80s and 90s. Now, that may sound incredulous. Stick with me. Um, there is a difference in the Anglican church and in much of the church between what we call high church and low church. Now, um, high church often means that it is closer to what we may associate with a Catholic, Roman Catholic understanding, and low church is closer to, say, the Pentecostal or, evangel or evangelistic or evangelical end of the spectrum. Uh, the high church has a stronger sacred and secular divide, so where they would understand that certain clothing is set aside to be sacred, um, and the low church doesn't really have that sense of divide in the same way. Um, that whereas uh, the high church may be closer to establishment in some ways, although also quite critical of the establishment and its own establishment in another way, um, whereas the low church is uh, basically 
characterized by being anti-establishment. Uh, anti um, so they would want to be as close as possible to um, a non-sacred, non-set-apart space. Um, whereas uh, the high church is, is characterized by traditional worship styles, the low church is characterized by modern worship styles. So they may be associated with things like pop music uh, rather than choral choir music and that type of thing. Uh, there are, um, there, whereas the high church is quintessentially uh, understand, understand its ethics to be a question of what is the established tradition. Um, the low church can, um, would say that it, they take it entirely from understanding how do we understand the Bible to be speaking into this modern space. Um, there would be uh, a, a focus of um, being mostly inclusive of LGBT people in the high church, and uh, in general, it's been mostly a negative experience for LGBT people in the low church. Now, this is a vast generalization, and there are huge amounts of exceptions, but just as a sort of broad brush um, approach. But the other thing to say is that there are the low church has been historically particularly good at attracting young people um, for lots of different reasons we could go into. Um, there is, uh, we can look at muscular Christianity, which is often linked to the low, low, um, low church. And there's a quote by Theodore Roosevelt that said that manliness is a combination of physical fitness and Christian virtue. And that was really adopted as a sort of mantra within the low church of what masculine Christianity should look like. Um, so uh, this pastor, who's recently been disgraced but recently resurrected from his disgrace, <laughs> Um, says, I can't worship a God that I could beat up. So basically, he wants to believe that Jesus was a strong, butch, forceful man who um, definitely was uh, not into anything that could be considered camp. Uh, there was this movement called Wild at Heart in the 90s, which really brought a focus back on muscular Christianity. And this was enormous in the low church. I mean, like every church in the country would have been selling this in their bookshelves and trying to re reinvest on this idea that Christianity should be as masculine as possible and is into hunting and hiking and all those sorts of things and, and rugged. Uh, this is Billy Graham, who is probably the most famous Christian of the 20th century, an American evangelist. And his, he was really one of the examples of this muscular Christianity, both in terms of his physique um, but also in terms of his language and the way he spoke. This is uh, the English, English version of it, Bear Grylls, who has been adopted as uh, the poster boy for the evangelistic out outreach uh, course called the Alpha Course. Uh, and this is uh, pa Pastor Matthew Ashimolowo, um, who is a Pentecostal leader of one of the largest Pentecostal churches in the UK, with about 2,000 members. Uh, in London and has multiple sites across the UK as well as that. And if you notice, there's a strong sense of sort of masculine identifying clothing there. And in particular, many Pentecostal leaders will dress in very professional, um, high-end uh, wear. So you, it's rare that you will find uh, black church Pentecostal leaders wearing jeans and T-shirts to lead worship. But they will wear very smart clothing, which is supposed to be a symbol of their authority uh, and their ability to speak and their training. Compare that with uh, Nikki Gumbel, who is probably the most famous clergyman in the UK, uh, who is from the low church end of the spectrum. And this is what he would use to lead worship. So he essentially is linking into the secular world. Uh, and the sacred-secular divide seems to be, be very blurred. Uh, in, in terms of the low church. So go one step again, this is a leader of uh, Hillsong in London, which is a large Pentecostal style church uh, that meets in the Dominion Theatre. Um, and again, I mean, you would not know any difference at all from somebody just walking along the street uh, to what somebody would, what a man in particular would wear to lead worship in that setting. Compare that with, with uh, this is Gaudaute Sunday, uh, on the high church end of the spectrum. And this is uh, people in the high, the high church era, end of the spectrum, men who are uh, wearing clothing um, which is very distinct from what secular clothing would normally be and what people might be wearing to go to their church. And there's a very strong focus on it being separate. And that has given space for a, a broader spectrum of what is masculine clothing uh, within the church. So um, we see here um, aspects of, of clothing which are not necessarily going to be considered extremely butch. Um, and it's interesting that it's very clearly pointed to the idea that this is rose clothing, not pink clothing. Um, 
And uh, there was a strong focus on the fact that this is not necessarily a, 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 a focus on, um, on homosexuality. Um, however, it has created a space for people who would like to explore um, a varied definition of what masculine or, or male identity might mean to have space within their faith to, to express that on different ways through their liturgical worship. Uh, this is uh, what uh, some Anglo-Catholic clergy are wearing, this is, uh, men and women, um, in their day, day wear. This is day wear for uh, average going around the parish uh, for some um, clergy. Again, it's very sacred, very separate from secular culture. <laughs> And this is uh, the uh, priest's uh, catalogue, which was put out by the pri some priests in Rome, um, on, uh, which I think has been discont discontinued, sadly. I think someone in authority decided that it was not fitting. Um, but they produced their catalogue for a number of years of various young, very good-looking male priests in Rome. Uh, not, I don't know whether they really consciously understood that it was being bought by gay men as well as by straight women, um, but that was very strongly... Uh, bought around the world. Uh, and I think there is this understanding from the, from the low church that uh, fussy clothing, which is how they may describe some Anglo-Catholic um, clothing attire, can lead to self-preoccupation, which can lead to uh, ineffective outreach, which can lead to priests who aren't pulling their weight. Now, that's a very harsh way of describing it, but I think it's a caricature that is worth understanding. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, we have this understanding of a lack of prayer of, of dress. Now, this isn't necessarily even personal dress, but this is a lack of attention to the proper way to dress as a clergyman could lead to a lack of care for the understanding of the priesthood in general, which could lead to a watering down of our of our product, of our understanding of what we are doing as, as Christian priests, which could lead to the death of the church. So both sides fear that the way that the other people are dressing could lead to um, the, their, what they hold dear and sacred being uh, lost. Then the question is, what, how have women priests uh, uh, influenced these two extremes? Well, uh, I think there's a good case to be made to say that it hasn't influenced it a lot that there are still definitely those extremes present within the church. But uh, I would argue that my experience has been that um, there is potential for a defetishization of the feminine um, in, within the masculine understanding of clergy wear. So uh, when you have a woman who is also wearing um, clothing which could be considered uh, within the feminine side of a masculine spectrum of the church, it changes the dynamic um, to, to a large extent. And the other thing they've had to do is create a more nuanced understanding of muscular Christianity, where people accept that there are women priests who are leading churches and are doing, leading worship in churches uh, that are maybe traditionally run by male priests, and that those churches may be growing and engaging. The lower end of the spectrum has had to give in to the idea that it's not just ultra-masculine ultra um, forms of Christianity that can grow the church. Um, interestingly, uh, when I first got ordained, or went forward for ordination uh, about 15 years ago, um, Sally Phillips, who is a comedian uh, famous for Bridget Jones' Diary and various other um, Smack the Pony, she wrote Smack the, uh, Smack the Pony, um, happened to be in my church, and she took me to one side, and she said, please don't let happen to you what happens to loads and loads of, of female comedians, in that they have to adopt a, a different gender expression. So they have to become more butch, essentially, in order to be taken seriously. And it's, it's interesting, she was saying that she, and when she was looking at the spectrum of female comedians who've broken into a very masculine world, they often um, either, either end up breaking in more easily or um, adopting a stronger butch persona in order to be taken seriously in a very masculine uh, community. And she felt that that was true within the church, and that's definitely been one dynamic of the early women priests who were coming in. Thankfully, uh, we are able to have a spectrum now of what is considered professional. This is uh, Libby Lane, to, to illustrate this. She was the first woman um, bishop in the UK, and it's interesting to see her outfit, if I can point out. She's wearing, actually, a priest's collar, not a bishop's collar. Um, and this was something that Rowan Williams brought in as a sign of humility to say that he may be the Archbishop of Canterbury in Rowan Williams's case or a bishop in terms of Libby Lane's case, but she's still basically a priest like the rest of us. But she is still wearing, this is pink, uh, it hasn't come out very well on this projection, uh, uh, the Episcopal colours, the, the bishop's colours 
as an extra scarf, which is a secular thing. But she's basically wearing an office business suit, the same as uh, most women CEOs would wear or most women in a professional space. So she is, again, blurring this idea of what is sacred and what is sec secular. And, um, and even women who are on the more traditional end of the spectrum often have a greater flexibility in how they present themselves uh, in wearing color, for example. Uh, not always, and there are still a large number of women, Anglo-Catholic priests, who would not wear anything other than black. Um, but the question of color is definitely being brought into that. Um, and so then there's the question of religious influence on the LGBT fashion. And I'll leave you with that picture because I don't have <laughs> a lot to say. Tell us what the picture is. Uh, so this is Conchita Borst. You may have come across Conchita. Uh, Conchita is a, a drag queen that won Eurovision uh, recently, very impressively, a couple of years ago, um, and has been made into an icon. Uh, I think this is the Sacred Heart icon, which is normally of Christ, um, but Conchita's face has been superimposed on top. Thank you. I'm not keeping that up just for now. Um, thank you so much. And just to take us through a few conversation points before we move over to our audience, I wanted to start, Asad, by asking you about outreach and allies, because clearly this came together with a lot of help from a lot of people, and your event builds relationships within Muslim communities, across faith and secular divides, with business, and inside and outside LGBTQ communities. And as you gear up for this year's Big Gay Iftar. Can you reflect, have you found allies and opposition where you thought you would, or has it ever been surprising? Um, that's a good question. I think uh, it has been a little bit surprising. I think, um, I think the church hall surprised me, first and foremost, because I thought, well, it's an Iftar, so I first got to explain that and then see if that would land in, in another religious context. And so that really, really did surprise me of, um, of that bridge. And I think at the very first one, we didn't do it this year, but we had a, a little, um, a small panel at the beginning. And the hardest role to fill was, we, we wanted to have a multi-faith panel. Um, so we had someone from Stonewall who spoke um, from a, from like a, a business background. Um, and then the area we really struggled with, we had a Muslim person, the, struggle, the area we struggled with was, um, was actually the Muslim person, was finding someone who would go out there and speak um, at, on, on behalf of Muslim people. And I think that's where we find the, the hardest allies to find within our own community. I think within the LGBT community, it's slightly easier. There are certain allies, even though there's a bit of friction and tension around how do you carry faith into your sexuality. So that hasn't always been the easiest, but it's been generally easier than the, the, the Muslim field to to find allies who would speak up and speak out quite publicly. When the doors are shut, yes, but when the doors get open or there's media coverage around it, it's a lot harder um, to find people. So yeah, I think... And is that because of the risk factor as well? I think it's because of the risk factor, but yeah, it's, it's mostly the risk factor. Through, through this journey of doing things like this, um, people, I say people crawl out of the woodwork, but and that doesn't sound how I want it to sound, but... <laughs> Voices come to you, not in a schizophrenic way, but voice, people start to email you or contact you and say, well, actually, I've been struggling with this for a long time, and I'll draw a parallel. So, um, for example, The Boy in the Top Knot is currently out on, on BBC, and there's a book by Satnam Sanghera, and he talked about mental health issues within the Asian community. So by doing that, lots of people come out and say, oh, yeah, I have been struggling with that, I just don't want to talk about it. And that's what I've found is there is a reticence to talk about it but there are people talking about it, just not publicly. And was it important to be in a religious space, not just a university hall? Yeah, I think that's where we're having the struggle with the third year because we've, we've you know, um, I believe in uh, trialing things. So what, what are you changing? And I think if we take it out of a religious space, it will lose something. Mm. Um, and I think we all feel that quite strongly. Um, so we don't know where... where what to do, whether we limit it, and that's fine. Um, but I think it's 
it wasn't important at the beginning. I was, I think I just got to a point where I, was, I just need a space. Like, I'll, <laughs> God answered, like, I'll take what I can. Um, but now it's become so intrinsic to, to what it means. So I think it is important, yes. And that raises different questions about what you wear when you go, depending on the space that you're in. Yeah. Or your own personal experience of being in religious spaces. Sorry, so uh, maybe one, one of the things I didn't talk about was taking off your shoes. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I talk, those bed sheets that we had in year one weren't that expensive. I wouldn't have minded if people had sat down with their shoes on, but it became quite an important part of it because it disarms people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of going into a mosque is taking off your shoes really disarms you because you are closer to God in some way, but also um, leaving a sign, a status symbol at the door um, and walking in and being uh, on an equal footing, quite literally, with others. So um, that has all kind of, it's kind of unconsciously happened that we've had bits like that come in. And also it's probably because if it was in my house, I would have asked people to take off their shoes anyway. So it's something that carried over. I think so one of the things that, um, with it happening in a church, and I, I don't think Giles, who's the vicar of that particular church, would mind me saying that his partner is a Muslim. Mm. And it, it yeah. was partly that that personal relationship made quite a big difference they're quite open about that so I'm sure they won't mind but um but my community in diverse church is of LGBT Christians found it enormously powerful a few of them went and a few of them um wanted to support it and publicize it online and that sense of not just being alone as a religious community of LGBT Christians but actually standing in solidarity and finding um, familiarity and, and engagement with someone and the beauty of an iftar as far as I understand it is that it's a welcome event for others who yeah. are not even Muslim. And so they learned about Islam, they learned a little bit about Muslim culture and customs yeah. in a way that they felt safe because they knew they were talking to an LGBT-friendly Muslim. Um, so they didn't feel judged for their sexuality. I mean, it was an enormously powerful event from a multi-faith perspective. Yeah, and I think the part, part of what I've seen in the narrative of Islam is there used to be a lot of intrigue around it before 9-11. It was people were very interested in, you know, why do you wear that, why are things like that? And that's completely changed. So to the point of when you see someone like that, you, you have an image because the media has perpetuated that image. Um, and, and by breaking that down, people are really intrigued to the same point that we were as children of asking people, why do you wear that? And what does that really mean? And, and what's that about? So that's kind of part of all of it is to strip back some of the media narrative. And I'm struck that you talk about the detail of taking off shoes, for example, or being able to sit on the ground. Because when I was reading um, your work, Sarah, I was struck by, certainly for the early generation of women ordained as priests in the Church of England, it can be detailed that undoes you. You gave this great example of someone who, a woman priest wearing a very tiny brooch that somebody who wasn't very happy about women priests thought, that's it, you know, that's too feminine, can't relate to them as a priest. Is it changing now? Now that the Church of England is 15 years on, or is detail going to kill you anyway? Um, I think it's a constant negotiation. So um, as Sally's nicely illustrated, you know, the, the, the clothing that clergy wear, they're, they're not what you, a secular person, would ever, would ever encounter um, in, their, in their wardrobe. So whether you're a man or a woman, um, everybody's got to negotiate um, the, the, the clothing and sort of, you know, sort of how, how do you embody priestliness in essence. Um, but I think for women, even to this day, there's still lots of challenges, um, more so for men. Um, and I think it's particularly related to the way in which the whole organisation has just been defined through this masculinist culture. Um, so I was speaking to a priest in the last week who said, you know, uh, was wearing um, uh, robes at a, a service on a Sunday. Again, they drowned her. And I think we have to appreciate what that feels like to be in clothes that are so... Um, you should just say that priests pitch up and do a service. They don't bring their own robes with them. Well, some or priests might have their own personal... Um, uh, so in, you know, within... Um, uh, that article that, you, that you're, you're talking about, one of the women um, experienced this lovely gesture of a church who had got vestments made for her and, and, and designed for her. Um, but typically, particularly in you know, large churches, you, know, you will just sort of um, arrive and, and be, mm. be you know, given the vestments of that particular community, of that particular church. 
and it's at this point where the 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 issues start so and I've even um, known it even when because obviously you know vestments you know they're um, they have a, a long life cycle you know it's not just you know it's not like you're going to get another an, 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 um, a fresh collection of um, tangibles or, or anything on a yearly basis um, but there was uh, one encounter of somebody I spoke to where the, the you know brand new vestments had been brought in but still none of them fitted her um, so it's, it's again it's that exclusion yes and it's that constant exclusion and it really you know from the priests I've talked to lots of priests about this and they really feel they say I feel clumsy I feel like everybody's looking at me I feel hyper visible and again it's like that can you do your job properly and I want to bring it back to LGBTQ sexualities because where is the space then in which priests and also lay people get to express LGBTQ sexualities through the way that they're dressing and presenting when they're in religious spaces or, or taking religious roles? Are there ways in which that happens or does it all just still get well, uh, blended out? I mean, um, sorry, just on your earlier point, it's yeah. also helpful to note that it's the robes, the outer robes are extraordinarily expensive. I mean, they cost thousands each and they usually have a matching set for the church. So you'd have your under robe, which is tailor-made for you, and then but the outer robe. But I think there's something for, I mean, that's really the space where, where women who are, um, are on the butch end of lesbian or who um, just say gender expression is more butch or masculine uh, actually have found that they, they almost pass as like, like people know that they're not men, but there is a sense of almost forgetting that you're a, the wrong gender. Um, and so actually there has been a space where to be um, particularly butch lesbian has been an advantage um, because you're um, the right you're body able, shape for the Yeah, for the and look. you interact in the way that they expect. So they could not be wearing their glasses and they wouldn't know it wasn't a man. <laughs> um, and it, I think there is... The church, and like, like I think some other extraordinarily patriarchal spaces, um, has been a space where people who don't conform have found it easier than you would expect, um, although there's been also huge difficulties as well. But That's a really interesting intersect, so that feminine presenting women who are clergy, whether their sexual orientation is gay, straight, bi, whatever, are more of a disadvantage because they don't fit the look and the modes of authoritative, what's recognized as authoritative behavior as easily. And even in terms of pitch of voice. Um, so um, someone told me once that if I was a soprano that I wouldn't be where I am in the church um, because high pitched voices don't, go, don't travel well in terms of sermons, preaching, and don't carry authority in the same way, apparently. Good job, I'm tone deaf. <laughs> um, I'm gonna open up for questions and contributions because I want, I've got many more questions, but I don't want to hog this. Would anyone like to start us off? And do please tell us who you are. Oh. Thanks, can you hear me? I'm Lucy from UAL. Um, really interesting that you mentioned The Boy With The Top Knot. I watched it last night on the BBC, mm. brilliant. My, the family on my father's side are Sikh, devout Sikhs. So I'm quite interested to know if any of you in your research, maybe you, Sarah, um, have come across any of that in the, you know, uh, anyone from the Sikh community in your field research. Who, um, so who identifies as LGBTQI? Um, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what, what you'd like to know about um, um, the, the, the individuals that I've interviewed, but... Um, what was very interesting was, you know, very much a, a similar to Jamil actually taking theological resources and saying, Sikhism is equal. Um, I have a place here, and being able to use theology in that way, um, but still ex experiencing um, a lot of exclusion um, from community spaces, from good borough spaces, and so on. Um, so it was a, a bit of a, a mixed um, experience and encounter. Um, but yeah, that, that has been part of my, my research. So the research that I did, it considered um, six religious groups, so it was quite, quite broad. Um, and um, we, we looked at sexualities broadly as well. It's worth saying, I mean, I don't know if you've come across, but I haven't come across a, a, a support network for LGBTQI Sikhs yet. Mm. I have for Hindus, I have for Jewish people. Obviously, there is Iman for Muslims. Um, mm. 
Yeah. Is there? Oh, yes. brilliant. Yes. So there is S A R B A T. Sarabat. So there brilliant. is one out there. That's good to know. Um, thank you. And hang on, you've got a meeting this Saturday. They have a meeting this Saturday. Fantastic. Anybody wants to find out about it? In the reception, ask this gentleman in the blue. Um, anybody? We love to share the good news. Anybody with another question or contribution? Yes. Uh, I'm Sammy from Cardiff University. Um, I was just really um, I'm interested in clothing as a kind of a form of or a kind of tool for outreach. Um, so based on what you were saying about the kind of pre-9-11 kind of intrigue and uh, things like the Iftar, um, for Eid in Cardiff, uh, there's this kind of lovely record of a kind of procession that would happen with the older Muslim communities in Cardiff where everyone would be uh, dressed in kind of traditional clothes and um, get these fantastic comments like, um, <laughs> look, everyone quick, it's, uh, it's Arab Christmas, <laughs> is what the kind of comment would be locally. Um, kind of personally, um, I've been aware of... Um, my brother's still in the air cadets and the kind of uh, space, the kind of, kind of seeing a bearded Muslim in uniform in certain spaces, um, how that's kind of been used as a kind of tool for outreach. So I'm interested if um, you're aware of this in uh, an LGBT um, plus kind of context. Ooh, um, and yeah, sorry, I, and to uh, everyone yeah, as well. Yeah, well, I, um, I think on that... Um, I think if I just look in my professional context of working in communications, it's the most powerful thing is always a single-minded message. So if you can present a single-minded message really easily through a visual of how someone looks, it's, it's much easier. And I remember, um, it's, a, it's a slight parallel, but I'll, I'll put it in, is um, after the London Bridge um, uh, accident incident happened, there was, I was in um, Nando's, and there was a police officer in a headscarf in Nando's, and I just thought that was brilliant. So I took a picture of it and put it on Facebook, and it sparked this huge debate about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And I think the point is is that people expect certain people to look a certain way, so you don't expect a police officer, A, to be in Nando's, but, <laughs> but B, to then be wearing a headscarf. And so that was the tension for me. And in the commentary, it was like, well, you don't, you know, police officers shouldn't look like that. And I was like, but they probably shouldn't be in Nando's having their photo taken. Like, there's, there's a broader construct. So yeah, it's, it's lowest common denominator. Like, present the message and present it really hard. And that's what people tend to do, for better or for worse. And I think one of the really interesting things from the commerce perspective as well, you know, thinking about universities or the private sector, is that when companies or organizations want to send a signal that they want to be inclusive, it will be the most easily visible. It will be somebody wearing a headscarf. It will be a woman wearing a, a, a clerical collar or something. And then those also become definitional. So part of the project then is about widening the frame and saying it's not just one mm. thing, but also trying to find a way of doing that messaging that says, yeah, here's a quick, you know, you'll notice it, you'll see. And then, and it's more complicated. Mm. We've got time for one more. Oh, is that a hand at the back? Yes. We're making Rosina run. <laughs> Hi, um, thank you. My name's Anna. Put um, the microphone close. My name's Anna. Um, thank you for your uh, talk. Um, I'm interested in, um, I appreciate that this is a faith and fashion event and so the focus was uh, a lot on aesthetics and visual presentation, um, but I was really interested uh, in the, uh, towards the end of the talk, the, the um, idea of women being heard and, and voices. And I was wondering how much um, space you feel um, there is within, how much conversation and how much space you feel there is for conversation within um, clergy communities for women to speak about these things. I, I appreciate that you're speaking to women personally and in there mm -hmm. and in your research as well, but I'm wondering how much spa space there is for that within the church, um, kind of that how much those conversations are happening. Thank you. Um, it's increasing a lot, and I think the presence of women bishops, and so for example, um, Joe Bailey Wells, who's the Bishop of Dorking, got involved in the Me Too campaign where she tweeted that she was also part of the Me Too um, experience. Um, Explain what Me Too is. Sorry, Me Too was a, a Twitter campaign where they were asking women who'd experienced sexual harassment 
um, or violence to say Me Too, to highlight how prevalent it, it has been uh, across society. Uh, and that the fact that Joe, as a bishop, did it meant that clergy women felt able to start talking a little bit about sexual harassment uh, or, and to say on social media that they had also been involved uh, in experiencing sexual harassment. Um, and I think our bishops are, our female bishops are actually taking very seriously their, um, their privileged role um, to enable conversations. Um, there's never enough. Uh, and I think it's really important that we enable it to happen across the spectrum of theological tradition in the church. So it's not just in certain areas, but across the church, women are able and regular churchgoers as much as clergy to talk about issues like motherhood and um, the experience of younger, younger female clergy versus older female clergy. And there's a huge diversity that Sarah and I talked briefly about before we came out um, that I think is really important to to say that women aren't just one type of person, and in particular, genderqueer women, um, or women who identify as uh, LGB, um, and, and even non-binary clergy are just on the verge of being visible. And we have some non-binary clergy in my organization, um, and that is just blows some people's minds, the idea of not actually being in one or the other, um, traditional sexes, um, or, or gender, sorry. Um, but the, the, but I, think, I think that is where we're, we're going, and people are becoming more aware of what they don't know. I would agree that social media has been incredibly powerful. So when I started my research, um, Facebook wasn't really a thing. Um, and I would be going, because my, my PhD was on priests who are mothers, and they didn't know anyone like them. They didn't know anybody else who'd had to negotiate maternity provision or anything else. Um, but then once with Facebook you could have these closed groups of a community in common that gave women the space to sort of talk about these issues. But then it's another step to get that visibility of, of issues that women are facing. So one can talk amongst oneself about, issue, oneself about issues, but how does that get translated um, you know, so that the, the sort of the organisation listens and, and, and structural changes uh, emerge from that. So, so that's the challenge. But I think, you know, it has been social media that has put people and groups together um, in sort of facilitating, you know, actually that's, you know, that's the same for me. And I think one of the things that's really interesting here is when we talk about, start off talking about LGBTQ sexualities and religious cultures, what becomes very clear is that gender plays and genders play such a central role in that and therefore that we think about all those different ways in which our dress gendered sexual bodies come into play in the relationship between the religious and the secular and all shades in between. Um, our bodies in a moment are going to move out the door across the corridor and to your right where we have a lovely reception for you and a chance to continue the conversation informally. But before we do that, it's my pleasure to make a few thank yous to everyone here at London College of Fashion who keeps this show on the road. I'm grateful especially to Lena liedemann Malokatos, our modest fashion research assistant supremo, mm -hmm. and to Rosina Chowdhury, who's done so much tonight. And I also thank Lindsay Fox from our communication team and Dan Adakpour, up here in ABTS, and I'm afraid I don't know your name. Oh, sorry, Shorten. Shorten, who's also been helping us. Um, I want to thank our speakers, the Reverend Sally Hitchner, Dr. Sarah Jane Page, and Asad Duna, who've been so intellectually generous in sharing their thoughts and opinions. And I thank you, as always, our wonderful audience for joining us in discussion. Um, if you aren't on our mailing list, if somebody else brought you along tonight, we have a sign-up sheet in the reception. We, we won't spam you, but we will let you know when we have events and when podcasts go up. But do please move swiftly in that direction and help us get our speakers to a well-earned beverage. Thank you so much. Thank you.